Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre, based in St. Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd, and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Well, hello, and welcome to another edition of GodPod. It's uh, always a privilege to um, be able to do this and to have you listening to us. So wherever you are in the world listening to this uh, podcast, um, uh, it's great to spend this uh, half an hour or so with you as we talk together. So it's me, Graham Tomlin, usually the host of GodPod, and uh, today I have with me um, Jane, Jane Williams. Hello. Um, so we're just the two of us here today. It's very strange, isn't it, without Mike? It is very odd without yeah. Mike or anybody else either. Yes, very strange. But it so is. it's a good job we've got all these people joining us. Exactly. Um, virtually. Yeah. All over the world yeah. listening into this. It's a strange thought. But, um, so, Jane, here we are with Next God Pod. So what should we talk about today? Well, it occurs to me, Graham, that uh, in a week from the day we're recording this programme, we're going to the polls in... Britain. We are indeed. We have uh, a general election. We have a general election uh, on December the 12th. Um, and obviously one of the major issues that's facing us is um, an issue that you've been doing really quite a lot of thinking about, which is the whole issue of Brexit. Uh, you've just published a, a book um, called Looking Beyond Brexit, Bringing the Country Back Together. It's a very short book. That's always a good thing in a book. It's a very small book. It won't take you long to read. Um so whatever possessed you, Graham, surely this is going to get you into so much trouble weighing well, in on this such a divisive issue. Well, exactly. I, mean, I, I did write it with a slight sort of hes- sense of hesitation because I'm aware that um, saying anything on Brexit can get you into um, into trouble o- over time. And I, and I have written one or two things in um, newspapers and so on over the last couple of years. But I suppose I, I, w- I was thinking over recent times that um, uh, as a church, we haven't said much about mm. Brexit. Um, uh, individual Christians have weighed in on one side or the other of the debate and uh, I've got friends in the church who are passionate leavers, passionate remainers and I've listened to both and um, uh, and tried to appreciate their arguments for it and I suppose I, I began to think well what can we say as a Christian church about the Brexit debate that brings a uh, perspective from Christian theology that might help to make some sense of what's uh, going on but also um, so that was part of it. It was part of the the, the, the idea. You know, what, what can we say as a as, as a Christian church about about this? But it's also the sense that um, I had that this this issue has polarised us like almost no other issue in recent times. And uh, one of the things about the gospel is that it's there's that passage in two Corinthians where, where, where Saint Paul talks about the message of reconciliation that God has given to the church the message of reconciliation and the one thing our nation probably needs more than any anything at the moment is reconciliation mm-hmm. so how might we as the church bring that what perspectives can we bring that might bring about reconciliation in this very polarized political and um and brexit debate that we have right now mm. because of course part of the um, reason why you have friends, Christian friends in both camps. I mean, the church is not agreed about this. That's why it's hard for the church to um, make a statement that's anything other than really generalise. Exactly, that's be, right. Be nice to each other. Yeah, <laughs> and, and in a way, that's actually what um, it's, it's divided everything. So yes. The political parties are the same. 
So it's not like the Conservatives or the Labour Party have a single view on it. They are both split right down the middle on this issue as well. And uh, so it's an issue that's cut across so many different lines Mm. of of the normal way we think. It's not a simple left-right issue. Uh, It's not a simple sort of conservative sort of, um, you know, liberal position. It's there are all kinds of different sort of um, dimensions to it, which which is why it's been quite disorientating for a lot of people, I think, both within the church and outside it. Mm. So tell us a little bit about how you um, start to help open this up for us, Graham. Well, I think at at the heart of the book is a simple idea, which is that... I mean, in a way, when you stand back from the from the Brexit debate, I want to say that both sides have a point. Mm. Um, and uh, the point basically is is this: it seems to me that that when you think of the, the the Leave vote on the one hand and the Remain vote on the other side, where did they come from? Now, there are all kinds of reasons why people voted Leave or they voted Remain. Um, but one quite common analysis of it is that the Leave vote, people who wanted to to leave the European Union. Uh, often tended to be people who um, who felt that their own identity, their own sense of national or civic identity was being eroded by forces in the world that they weren't in control of. Now, that might have been forces of globalization. It might have been mass immigration. It might have been a federal Europe that seemed to be eroding any sense of national identity. And uh, these were people feeling actually that sense of national identity is really quite important to us. We, we need to have a sense of control over our own destiny. And so national sovereignty becomes a real issue for them. Um, and uh, I, I kind of want to say I, I understand some of that because actually every nation needs a sense of its own history, a sense of its own um, character, its its identity, its language, its literature, its sense of humour, the TV programmes we've all watched, the, sort of, you know, the, the, the sporting teams we support. And the nations are different from one another. And we need a sense of our own identity as a nation or a city or whatever. Every society needs that sense of its own history, its own identity, what makes it different from other, any other, other countries or nations. But if that's all you have, then there's a danger because you end up being very proud of your own culture, looking across at other cultures, thinking they're inferior. Uh, you can get into that sort of ethnic pride and we all kind of know where that leads. And so also on the other side, it seems to me, cultures also also need alongside a sense of their own identity they also need a sense of openness to the rest of the world and that i think is where the remain vote largely came from it came from people who for whom the priority was not so much national identity but an openness to the rest of the world a sense of welcome to others a sense of learning from other cultures a curiosity about uh, um, about the rest of the world and wanted to keep our doors open to the rest of the world uh, and i kind of want i just kind of understand that as well because i think that you know, pride in your own culture can be a good thing, but it can turn bad, which is why you need that openness to other cultures. And so I guess what I'm saying at the heart of the book is that every healthy society needs both of these things, both of these impulses, a sense of of national civic identity, which goes back into history, the things that have shaped us as a people, but also an openness to the rest of the world, an openness to be corrected, an openness to kind of learn from the rest of the world. And the problem with the referendum is it forced us to choose between two things that actually belong together. And we had to decide one or the other. And uh, that's why it's been so painful. And that's because actually instinctively we feel both of these things are needed, but the referendum forced us to choose. And so actually what happened is that half of us emphasised one side, half of us emphasised the other. It was never going to be entirely 50-50. It fell a little bit on one side. It could have fallen the other side. And that's where we are today. And that's a really interesting diagnosis um, and and I suppose part of what you're saying is um, is that this issue gave us a chance 
to crystallize um, uh, things that have, that have been bubbling along for yeah. for, for ages mm. um, and uh, that, that have reared their heads as disagreements in all kinds of ways. But this particular um, uh, decision crystallized a lot of that around yeah. um, uh, an issue that looked like something that that either meant you voted one way or yeah. voted another. Do you think that was actually... Um, do you think those two views are actually um, really different? Is there? A, 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 no. You've said we need both. Are there, are there ways? How might we yeah. get both? Yeah. Well, I, th- I think they are, and I think um, I mean, a, a way of looking at that question, I think, is to is to to look at it theologically. And, and one way of looking at it, I think, is I've been spending some time thinking about the doctrine of the incarnation, mm. because when you think of the doctrine of the incarnation, you can read that in two ways. On the one side, you can read the idea that the word was made flesh, that can be seen as an affirmation of local culture. You know, when when God took on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, he became a first century rabbi wearing the clothes, speaking the language, eating the food of first century Jewish culture. And he was not a generic human being. Uh, he was very specific, mm. embedded in that culture. We have a principle in missiology of that incarnational principle the enculturation the idea that when when the gospel is preached in a particular culture you have to kind of embed it in that culture and make it tilt the language and have the, the yeah, yeah and you know kind of in, in be embodied in that place yet on the other side you can also read the incarnation as a critique of local culture because jesus wasn't slow to critique the culture of first century judaism and his time um he would say some quite harsh things about it as well and that uh, one of the things about the incarnation is that, yes, it was an embeddedness in first century Jewish culture, but at the same time, it was not just for first century Jews. And that was St. Paul's great insight, of course, which is this was a gospel for everyone, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles uh, across the world, too. So if you like, in the incarnation, you've got the local and the universal. Mm. If you like, you can put it, you know, the, the, the sheer particular humanity of Christ. But you've also got the divinity of Christ, which is, if you like, a kind of more universalizing concept. Now... Um, I, I think the referendum was a little bit like saying to a Christian, okay, is Jesus human or divine? You've got to choose. And of course, any sensible Christian would come back and say, well, I can't choose. Mm. Uh, he is both. He's not half one and half the other. He is 100% divine, 100% human. That was the, the outcome of the early Christological debates that led up to Chalcedon. It was fully divine and fully human, a fully embraced divinity, a fully embraced humanity. And therefore, the incarnation gives us a model of how actually we need to hold together two things that might actually seem to be opposed to one another, but actually belong together. Uh, And actually, if you divide them, you're in real trouble. You misunderstand it. And so if you like, the incarnation can be a lens that could help us to see how you can hold together two things that apparently seem to be contradictory, but actually are not when you look at it in the deepest level of things. That's really interesting. And of course... um it never actually worked, has it? Because we, as, as theologians, are constantly um, uh, trying to do one or the other. So yeah. um, whenever we try to do theology that's really enculturated, there's always the, the pushback about are we leaving out um, essential things in order yeah. to, to make yeah. it make sense in this particular culture. Yeah. And uh, likewise, if we try to do um, what you might call the more universal telling of, of the incarnation, then you get yeah. things like liberation theologies having to arise because it's not taking enough sure, exactly. account of the particularity. Yeah. Yeah. So it sounds as though actually we we always get back to these. That's right. And, and I think you know the, the history of the early debates on Christology was precisely that. It was 
those, so for example, those in Alexandria, Cyril of Alexandria, that great tradition of, 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 of early Christian theology that wanted to say the most important thing about the incarnation is that Jesus Christ was divine. Mm. They wanted, whatever happens, you must hold on to the divinity of Christ because if, if it's not God who's become divine, that as Athanasius, you know, we cannot be saved. But then on the other hand, you've got the tradition of the Antiochene strand of, of Christology and Nestorius and others wanting to say, actually, it was vital that, human, that Jesus Christ was human. Because if he doesn't identify with us, then then we're not saved either. And so you've got this debate going on in the early church of those who wanted to emphasize, well, no, whatever we say about the, the incarnation, we must hold on to the divinity of Christ. Others saying, whatever we say about the incarnation, we must hold on to the humanity of Christ. And I think what Chalcedon says at the end of the day, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, which meets to kind of resolve this issue, is actually you, you always need to say both. That he is fully divine and fully human, not half and half, but fully both. And that's the only way you can do justice to the incarnation. Difficult as that is, and as you as you say, is at the point point you helpfully make, Jane, is is there's always that tendency to go to one side or the other, and that I think helps us to understand Brexit because you know the referendum was this this sudden forcing us to choose between one side or the other, between things that actually belong together. Mm. And that every healthy society needs both the local and the universal at the same time. And I mean, one of the things you helpfully do in the book is to help us stand back and look at some of our history. So you do a little bit of the work around what happened at the Reformation, Mm. which was another one of those times where um, all kinds of issues that have been bubbling around for a long time came to a crunch around a particular decision that had to be made. How does that help talk us a little bit through Yeah. Well, I think there I mean, a number of... um, analysts have made a parallel between the English Reformation in the 16th century and, and Brexit because of course England in 1500 uh, was part of a pan-European project the Roman Catholic Church centered in Rome um, that was uh, a European wide um, uh, institution and what happened in the 1530s was King Henry VIII for all kinds of different reasons uh, decided uh, was advised to, to 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 break away from the this pan-European project centered in Rome, not in Brussels or in Luxembourg, but in Rome, uh, and in the kind of 16th century equivalent of Article 50, um, the Act of Supremacy, where where um, Henry VIII uh, issued this act that said that from now on the head of the Church of England is no longer the Pope but the monarch. This was England breaking away in ecclesiastical terms from the Roman Church. And I guess, so parallels have been made to that on both sides, you know. Um, and I suppose that the, the point I'm, I'm making in this is that uh, that break in 1534 didn't solve the issue. Um, it put Britain on a different track from the kind of pan-European Roman Catholic Church. But it didn't resolve the issue. It mm. continued to be an issue for decades, centuries afterwards. And in fact, there are two trajectories you can see going on in English history from that point on. One trajectory leads to a civil war. Mm. In the 17th century, we ended up killing each other over some of the issues that were brought up at the Reformation. It's not purely religion. It was all kinds of other stuff involved in the civil war as well. But that's one possible trajectory. And it's a warning to us if we allow division to continue in such a, a kind of radical way like that. That's where we can end up. But, but I also suggest in the book, there's another path that was taken, which is what you find in what is sometimes called the Elizabethan settlement, because what happened in, in um, when Elizabeth came to the throne, she inherited a very deeply divided nation uh, between the Protestant and the Catholic sides. 
those who were very convinced about the Protestant way, others who were very convinced that the um, that the Reformation was a mistake and we should go back to the Catholic Church. And the attempt that was made in the in the English in the in the Elizabethan settlement, which kind of gave birth to the Anglican Church as we know it was in a sense to try to hold these two things together. So Anglicanism ever since then has been a form of reformed Catholicism that has some elements of the, of the medieval Catholic church from the past, uh, but many elements, elements of the Reformation uh, at the same time. And so it was a kind of unique experiment to try to hold together two things which otherwise, certainly on the continent, tend to split apart. So if you went in France or Germany or Holland, you'd have either Protestant churches or you'd have Catholic churches, and they were different. Here we tried to hold them together, and it's never been easy. Um, the Church of England has always been on the brink of schism of one mm. kind or another. It's not been an easy task to do, but it shows us it kind of, there is a, 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 an example in English history of, of us having to do this before. And I guess in the book I try to explore some of the dynamics of that and how that has worked and how that, again, might be a lens through which we can see the Brexit debate. Mm. And, I mean, that is a really helpful um, analogy but of course, in practice, as you say, um, the, 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 the worked example in England immediately after the Reformation, and particularly during the Elizabethan settlement, uh, worked in a relatively small country, uh, relative, relatively monochrome, um, and uh, there were always people on the edges who were actually not part of this yeah. uh, great settlement. Uh, yeah. And as the Church of England has grown and has, um, uh, and, uh, and uh, the British Empire grew and therefore we became part of a global culture in a different way. We've mostly existed by um, being quite polite to each other but not mm. not having too much to do with each other across the different traditions. Mm. And mm. the problem is that uh, that Brexit is, has forced us to, to, to actually come out in the open and acknowledge mm. the fact that we, uh, we, we don't know what it is uh, to be British. We don't know what it is to be part of a yeah. a, a, a local mm. culture and a global culture. Mm. We don't know how to do this. I've never seen um, a, a political situation so completely um, frozen and stymied, and yeah. uh, not we don't know how to have the debate even. Yeah, sure. So, as the Christian Church, um, we we'll we'll get as a nation we'll get through this at some point. We have to make decisions. Decisions will be made. Um, as a, a leader of the Christian Church, are, you, are there ways in which we can help to reconstruct what happens after yeah, that? Sure. Yeah. No, it's a really good question, and I think um, uh, I think w one of the reasons why the Anglican Church was able to sort of make this work, although not always terribly successfully, but sort of it's still there. We're still here as a Reformed Catholic Church that kind of works together across those divides. Um, is because underneath it, we've got a, a framework of thinking that we hold in common, yeah. which is basically our creeds. So it doesn't matter whether you're Protestant, Evangelical, or whether you're sort of on the more Catholic side of the Church of England, we, we still believe the creeds mm. together. We have that common narrative of creation, fall, incarnation, doctrine of the Trinity that holds us together. So there's a common story. And I, I suppose I think that because in the Christian Church we've got that common story, um, it should be possible for us to have the conversation at least uh, in a way that's maybe harder in the wider culture because maybe some of that's we've lost. We've mm -hmm. lost a sense in our wider British culture of a common story that holds us together. So one of the things I've been doing over the last few um, months in my own Episcopal area here in London is to hold a series of um, gatherings where I bring people together. I did one the other night. I've got 150 people together in one of our deaneries 
Um, and I uh, got them at the beginning to say, okay, right, which ones of you voted leave? Which, which ones of you voted remain? That's very brave. Yeah. Um, they didn't have to show their hand. Yeah. They didn't want to, but roughly half and half yeah. uh, showed one side or the other. And then I said, okay, right, what I want you to do is to find someone else who voted the other way than you did and uh, just explain to each other why you voted the way you did. And the rules are you don't argue back. You don't try to kind of prove your point. You just listen to the other person. And um, so we did that exercise. And it struck me as I was watching these people all the way across this room having that conversation. That's just not happening in our culture. Um, Now, we should be able to do that as the church. And this is a little attempt to try to make that conversation happen. So we can actually listen to one another. So people might be able to realize, okay, I voted leave, but I can kind of see why you voted remain. Or I voted remain, but I can sort of see what you're coming at in voting leave. Because unless we get to that point where we can kind of see the point that the other person was making, even if we want to carry on waving the flag for one side or the other, uh, we're never going to get any sort of re- reconciliation. So I think the first thing I want to say to churches is let's have the conversation amongst mm-hmm. ourselves as a start. And if we can have that conversation and listen to one another, it might be we can host other conversations more widely that enable that conversation to happen in the wider society in a way that doesn't end up in the kind of name calling and the mm-hmm. shouting and the kind of aggression that has happened so often in the debate so far. And that then is a technique or a um, an offer um, that outlives this particular political situation. Um, if we as church can build more competency in in this area, there, are, because it, it does seem to me that you're absolutely right. There are very few spaces in our culture, and our culture is not unique in this, where people from different um, sides of any debate come together uh, in, in a forum that is held respectfully, where you yeah. do that kind of listening. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's, that's right. And obviously we have, we have an election just around the corner in a couple of weeks' time. Um, if you're listening to this after the election, then don't worry. This is just this is all part of the history of GodPod. But, you know, I'm conscious with that. And, you know, Brexit being a key issue at the heart of that, that uh, one of the things we need to regain is this possibility of having those political, um, economic, even religious conversations in a way that is is fruitful, uh, curious, respectful. Uh, and I think we Christians ought to be able to begin to model that, as I say, because we do have a, a common framework mm. for thinking, which maybe isn't there in the wider world, uh, in, in, in outside, um, in a way that maybe was once the case. We had a, a more common framework for thinking about, about life. Um, so I, I just want to say to, to the church, whether it's the election, whether it's Brexit, the kind of issues that will go on, the election, again, won't resolve some of these issues longer term. Um, church ought to be the place where we can have those conversations uh, and develop our own proficiency in it. And then, if you like, offer that mm. to a wider society and say, well, look, you know, we can maybe host these conversations to enable that those conversations to happen in a way that isn't happening elsewhere. And obviously people will um, uh, rightly point back to us uh, that within the church there are all kinds of divisions that we yeah. um, uh, may not seem to be holding uh, well and respectfully. Um, But again, I think one could argue that um, the the Anglican way, which looks so woolly to some people, uh, for example, that we um, embrace uh, those who know that women are called to the episcopacy and those who um, know that they can't be, uh, and say both of those are are, are real possible ways to be um, Christians. And as I say, that looks like... um, simple nonsense to a lot of people from the outside. Mm. How can you say both of those things can be true? 
is, is it bound to lead to just um, uh, a sort of lowest common denominator of uh, I'll be nice to you while continue to think you're basically wrong yeah. or is there more to it than that? Yeah. Well, I think there is there's more to it and it's, it is a complex thing because, I mean, there are some issues where people hold, you know, compassionate views on one side or the other. And, and this isn't a, a case of saying, well, everyone's, you know, everyone's got a bit of a point on every issue and, yeah. you know, um, there's nothing ultimately true about it. There are still things that are true. Um, but I think this is part of the part of the the the, um, the the dynamic, you know, the doctrine of the incarnation, that, that God became flesh in Jesus Christ. That is a true doctrine. Mm. Um and, you know, one of the things the New Testament says, anyone who denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, you know, that, that's not a, a, an option for mm. a Christian. But at the same time, that belief in the incarnation, it, it requires us to hold together two things that otherwise we might allow to drift apart, the full divinity and humanity mm. of Christ. Mm. So that's part of the nature of theological work, it seems to me, of holding together things that otherwise might be Held apart, and that goes on all throughout Christian theology: you know, creation and fall, um, the doctrine of the Trinity, mm. uh, the, the incarnation, divinity, and humanity of Christ, um, uh, faith and works. There's a kind of polarity in so many things in mm. Christian faith that we have to kind of hold together uh, rather than allowing them to drift apart. Um, but that isn't saying every issue is like that, but it's a skill we have to learn, uh, and I think something we can uh, maybe help to. Uh, to teach others to do as well. Now, that isn't, that isn't saying we've got it perfectly right and we have our own arguments and dispute. We don't always do that very well within the church. Um, but I think it is something we, um, here's an issue which we can start doing it on, where I think it is, I would want to say it is true to say there is there is a point to both sides of this Brexit mm. debate and recognising that is, is giving us a way forward. And obviously lots of people um I will say to you, probably already have, um, that it isn't the church's business to um, make what are seen to be political mm. statements yeah. um, uh, because uh, otherwise people will be suspicious of the church and won't feel they can come mm. with very different views to the church. What do you want to say in response to that? Yeah, uh, I think it's hard for the church not to be political because mm. politics is about life. Politic, politic, politics is about the way we live together in the polis, the city. And if Christian faith doesn't have anything to say about the way we live together, um, it's kind of saying that God doesn't care about how we live mm. together. But of course, God does care about how we live together. And therefore, the Christian church saying something about that is important. Now, it may or may not be right for the church to kind of opine about specific details about you know, policy of taxation or whether to go on the right, or, you know, the leave or the remain side, mm. which is why I deliberately haven't. Um, pushed a particular side on this, but tried to step back from it and try to frame the debate in a wider context, which enables us to kind of think about the key issue, which I think is reconciliation, which I think the gospel does have something to say about. Mm. And I guess that's the approach I've tried to take. And this is a very unfair question, Graham, and therefore you don't have to answer it. Um, But you said in relation to our faith, our Christian faith, there are some things that are non-negotiable. Are there non-negotiable things about what kind of a society we want to be and therefore um, that play into yeah, how yeah. we want to approach this debate? Yeah, well, I, I think I go back to those two impulses that are at the heart of this debate. We want to be a society that's confident in its own history, its own identity, its own that values its background, its language, its literature, its sporting history, you know, all that things that make... Whatever culture, country you're from, whether you're English or French or German or Brazilian or Portuguese or whatever, you know, there's a proper 
um, valuing of that. And we need to have that sense of confidence rather than a sense of, you know, um, berating ourselves about it. But we also need to be a culture that is open to learn, aware of the blind spots in our own history mm. and our backgrounds, aware of those things that we've not done well, those bits of our history that we should repent of, uh, and therefore a willingness to be curious about the rest of the world, to learn from other cultures, to learn about other languages and and, um, and literatures and so on, and holding that balance. And I think it's the task going forward after, after Brexit, if we do leave the European Union, it's the same task as was before the European Union. How do you hold those two things together? Mm. But we'll be doing it from the other side, outside the EU rather than in. And so I think to be those the balance of those two things describes something of the kind of culture we want to be. Um, uh, and in a way, part of that is saying that we are uh, meant to be a kind of culture where we learn to love those who love us. It's part of Jesus' teaching. Mm. But also those who are different from us, to love our neighbours and our, even our enemies. Mm. And actually in the book, I go into that in quite some detail the kind of forms of love that we are called to love for ourselves love for those who love light who love us that love for our neighbor and love for our enemy and we need to be the kind of culture that can do both of those things that doesn't try to doesn't oppose love for those who are like us to love for our enemy or our neighbor uh, but neither do we go in the other direction and say well we love our neighbor and our enemy and we, and we don't care about those who are like us and mm. who are close to us we need to be able to do both of those two things and that's another whole God pod, isn't it? Talking about the disciplines Absolutely. that might enable that. Exactly. Yeah. So this is really a debate um, that will continue long after the election um, and that transposes into different kinds of sharp uh, divisions in different countries, not just this whole Brexit debate. But your book is called Looking Beyond Brexit, Bringing the Country Back Together. And Published by SPCK. Thank you. And... Um, £4.99, apparently. That's a price to price. <laughs> so I do recommend that for all of us um, trying to be part of making a good uh, country after the election. Thank and you. I think one thing I want to say is, Ian, if you're in a church that wants to think in a Christian way about Brexit, one idea might be to get a copy of the book or a few copies of the book and, and discuss it and just gather a group of people together, read the book, see what you make of it, have the conversation because I think we've got to start the conversation mm. somewhere. So thank you, Jane. Thank it's you, been Graham. great to have this conversation. Um, hope that's helped you as uh, you, um, if you are interested in the Brexit debate, how to um, think about that. Uh, we'll be back again with another God before too long. Uh, so it's good for me. And for me. We'll certainly try.